0: I'd love to say that this is kind of the end of regulation here and that they're they're satisfied with these changes, but it's probably, you know, an ongoing battle that we're going to continue to see just because this is a major
1: topic in Oregon currently. If you're a real estate investor currently investing in the Western United States or wanting to get started, this show was made for you. Unlike most real estate podcasts that focus on the national view, We get local with regional information to give you a competitive edge in your market and a broader perspective. In each episode, we'll introduce you to market insights and real-life strategies through industry experts. Welcome to another growth opportunity in the West. Hello, Matt Williams here with Garcia Group Real Estate Services. Um, Invest in the West. I'm here with Nicholas Cook from Sleep Sound Property Management. Today, we're going to be talking about the recent Oregon elections and the impact that those changes may have on our market here in the Portland metro area, but statewide as well. And to digest what we may see with upcoming changes, we're going to be touching on a bit of recent history so we can look at it really in context. Nick, tell me about what you've seen having managed properties for landlords and navigating their strategies with tenants. What changes have you seen in recent years to the way that real estate investors have to adapt or react to the market?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. Um, you know, Portland has really been put on the map recently, especially in the last 10 years, but you've really seen a huge uptick over the last five. Um, but, you know, Oregon and in Portland in particular used to be one of those places not many people had heard about. And because of the high quality of life, you've seen a lot of people start to kind of come towards this area, move out west, and and specifically Portland. And what that's done is it's really changed the landscape for a lot of landlords. We went from having rules that would be passed and you know not change for a long period of time, and just simply in the last ten years, I mean, there's been pages and pages and pages of changes. Um, and you've seen values change, and you've seen neighborhoods evolve that you know otherwise. May have not changed much in ten or fifteen or twenty years, but now you know in five years it's a whole new place. So um, that's really where you started to see some of the things take place. Now you know you're in sales, and so you focus a lot on that, and so you're working with people that are buyers both locally and out of the area. You know Oregon has been ranked among the top ten states to move to by at least United Van Lines and a variety of other um, industries that essentially measure where people are moving for migration patterns. Um where are you seeing people really move predominantly when they're coming out to Oregon because it just says, you know, Oregon that people are moving to Oregon.
1: Yeah, you know that's actually a really good point um, because we get this kind of thought process in Portland, especially with uh, native Oregonians uh, or native Portlanders, where they're really saying, "Oh, you know, those California buyers are coming into our our city, or the Seattle folks are moving into Portland, uh, and really driving up the price." And you know, to be honest, Oregon in general, yes, is a great destination because we have great amenities, and you can get to the mountain in forty five minutes, and you can get to the beach in just a couple of hours. Um, but really. What What it comes down to is, you know, Portland is kind of the mecca uh, for a destination point. And a lot of that has to do with those major metropolitans that are feeding sources like Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles. Because on the West Coast, we're one of the cheapest, uh, if not the cheapest as far as cost of living goes, uh, with a lot of the same political environment, a lot of the same cultural amenities, a lot of access to some of those uh, nature points that we discussed earlier. You know, foodies love it here. Uh, Technology has given a lot of people the opportunity to work from home or work remotely. And you can fly up and down the the West Coast pretty easily. So really, Portland has become a destination point. Um, But because a lot of the news will tell you that Oregon is the destination. I think that's why you're kind of seeing some of that transition uh, in legislation and some of those market movement go statewide. Uh, What starts in Portland oftentimes ends up kind of moving statewide and and really impacting the entire state. It's really interesting, too. You know, the other part of it is that many of those – Oregonians, who are also Portlanders, are wanting to stay in Oregon, but they're migrating out to central Oregon. You see a lot of movement out towards Bend. You see some folks looking in in central Oregon as well. So as you see people move to the inner city, some of those Portland folks who have lived here their entire lives are thinking, hey, you know, maybe the suburbs aren't so bad, or maybe I want to get halfway between the coast and the city. Uh, Maybe I want to try central Oregon a bit. So you do see uh, some movement there, both from people moving to Portland, And the old Portlanders kind of moving to the outskirts as well. You know, you've been involved with the city council a bit on the housing specific to Portland, but also looking at the state elements in the past couple of years. Obviously, you're in the industry. So tell us how the topic of housing came to the forefront here at the city.
0: Well, you know, a lot of times um, politicians are really reactive. And one of the things that the city of Portland has really failed to do well was to develop uh, middle market housing. So basically housing where you have apartments, where you have small plexes, uh, whether those are accessory dwelling units or duplexes and four plexes and so forth, or even again, you know, maybe some courtyard or garden style apartments. Um, and so because they failed to really develop that, um, but at the same time really promoted the economy and a lot of, you know, livability and really drove people to move here, like we're talking about, um, suddenly there was a housing issue. There was a lot of uh, people moving here and not really enough supply. And so that naturally started to push rents up. Um, people started seeing rent growth. That was you know, somewhere between 5 and 10% year over year for a period of time. And you know, when that compounds on itself, you're seeing some pretty significant swings um, in income, and or not income, but in terms of rent. And incomes weren't keeping up with that, so the city started to get more involved because they had constituents that were, you know, worried about it. And more specifically, you know, we have some council members recently, like Chloe Udaly, who really ran on a platform of essentially, in, you know, rolling out what they deem to be renter rights or renter protections. Um, and so they've taken a really aggressive stance and a lot more of an interest in the housing issue because. Um you know it's just something that people want to hear about, and it's in the news all the time
1: yeah, you know it it's really interesting that uh that's come up because it's it's oftentimes called a housing crisis, right? I mean we see ourselves as a city and as a um you know in our general core values as a city we're we're trying to figure out how to handle that housing situation have Have you kind of seen that uh with your clients and in, in general and trying to resolve that? have you seen landlords make an effort to that? Has there been kind of an integrated uh, version of the two parties working together
0: um and we've seen some some of that i mean the challenge is this is that no one's really defined what a housing crisis is um it's something that's been used in a lot of rhetoric but you know one of the things that we don't see is vacancy rates rising rapidly and rents falling which you know if you were really dealing with a housing crisis um you would you would often see issues around affordability come into play which would then impact people's you know, interest and capability of renting, which would cause vacancy to rise and, you know, rents to fall. And so we're not really, really seeing that in the marketplace, um, necessarily play out. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of mom and pop landlords that have, you know, that they're not raising their rent as much as they can. I mean, they're keeping rents below market. Um, you know, people care about that. We, we hear from our clients all the time that, you know, they understand that there's a shortage in housing supply and that they don't want to be part of the problem. They want to be part of the solution. So, you know, that's a great question. I mean, it's definitely something that people are attempting to, you know, address because most landlords really are small operators. They're not big, you know, commercial operations that really only look at the bottom line. You know, it's tenants and landlords oftentimes have a very good relationship. Um, you know, and so that's really kind of what I think we've seen emerge as you know, a semi-solution to the issue and, and kind of a reaction from both parties. Now, you know, in your opinion, how do you think these changes, you know, have impacted the landlord-tenant relationship overall, in terms of, you know, all the new regulations and some of the rhetoric coming from the city uh, and some of the things you see on the news and so forth?
1: Well, I mean, it's obviously really led to a very adversarial communication or line of communication, I'm, you know, obviously, you'd mentioned Chloe, Chloe, you daily prior, you know, her tone certainly is not indicative of the way that tenants and landlords have uh, reacted in general in the past. But it really has been something where it's a blame game, uh, where the landlords, to a certain extent, are blamed for a housing crisis, as it's labeled, when, you know, there's some certain shortfalls from the city and the planning department in trying to resolve the issue, knowing that that's coming down the pike. The other thing that I think that should be acknowledged is, you know, during the recession when there were hundreds of vacant units and rental rates were being dropped and there were uh, landlords giving away months of concession, there was no housing crisis. There was no help for the landlords. There was no contribution from the city there. It really has been kind of a one-sided move to solution on that side um, and, and I think that there probably could could have been some better resolution with some collaboration between the two parties. And it's created a, this narrative of landlord versus tenant. And that's really in practice. That's not how it works. Uh, you don't have a customer versus the provider in just about any business. And real estate investing is a business. A landlord can't survive without a tenant playing, paying rent. And the tenant can't survive without a landlord providing clean, healthy, safe environment as as housing. And so, really, that collaboration, the importance of having that, um, really should be much more collaborative than the tone that's coming out of the city now.
0: Yeah, and I would agree with that. I mean, and in, in, you know, to kind of add on to what you said about the recession and just you know people trying to keep their mortgages afloat while potentially being underwater. You know, you also didn't see any of that um, coming in, or this you know any help from the city when the market was booming. I mean, back in 2002, three, four, when you, know, you could fog a mirror and get a mortgage, you know, you saw people emptying out essentially apartment buildings, just because they could go buy stuff. And, you know, you don't see the city come in and say, hey, you have a 30% vacancy rate in your building, we feel sorry for you, what can we do? You know, those people were forced to deal with the issue at that time. So, you know, there's definitely an issue here of, of equal treatment, and equal concern. But, you know, it's not It's not too surprising that that's how it plays out just because, um, you know, again, these are politicians we're dealing with. But um, to get into your kind of, you know, particular issue, um, you know, regarding some of the, you know, essentially attitudes from the city, I mean, they've definitely implemented a lot more extreme measures recently. So, um, you know, they're taking a very serious approach to this, and we've seen a lot of that happen in the last few years.
1: Well, you know, one of the things that's come out is this uh, relocation ordinance that the city uh, came up with obviously brought to the forefront there's been a lot of uh, confrontation and obvious uh, uh, concern from landlords and not just as a point of whether or not it's right but whether it's legal there have been lawsuits that have gone back and forth um, you know what what was really the city's intent there and how have you seen it impact owners and tenants in general over the last couple of years now that we've been dealing with it?
0: Yeah, you know, the city, again, you know, they're, they're reactive, right? And they're dealing with some real issues that are tough to solve. And, you know, when they have constituents or advocate groups that are saying, you know, we have people that are living on the streets, they're living in their cars, uh, they're losing their housing, you know, sure, it's great to sit back and think about the best way to implement policy from a long-term perspective. But at the immediate moment, somebody does need relief. And so what they've done is implement relocation assistance because of a couple of reasons, but mainly just because of the fact that low-income people are being displaced. They're the ones who are being hurt the most when a landlord asks somebody to move. Um, And you saw this really become unpopular in the multifamily realm where you had people come in and buy an apartment building with 30 units or 40 units or whatever happened to be, and they would vacate the entire complex. And so what that did is, you know, add a lot of tenants into the marketplace kind of simultaneously, um, and expedited that process. And when you had that happen in multiple apartment buildings, um, which again, this is not the norm, but it was at a faster rate than what it had been formerly, um, the market couldn't absorb those new tenants. So that created one issue. Uh, The issue, other issue is a lot of people live paycheck to paycheck and moving is expensive. And it's one of those things where, you know, they have to put a a deposit down somewhere else. They got to maybe get a moving truck. Maybe they have to miss work. I mean, there's a lot of things that were going on. And so the city wanted to implement rent uh, relocation to basically help people who are being displaced. Um, You know, some of the concerns with that, though, is you know, they didn't means test it. So that was, you know, a little bit bizarre if your goal was to help people who were in financial distress. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that they were really hoping for is to essentially reduce turnover um, and help people that were displaced.
1: Yeah, you know, and along those lines, I I mean, I I have to agree, I remember giving a no cause termination to a tenant that made $200,000 a year, they were in a four bedroom, two bathroom house is probably $700,000 house, we paid them $4,500 to move out and based, you know, uh, you know, going along with your argument there that there, it's not a means based, uh, program really is a challenge because I know several families that could have used that, uh, $4,500 that were actually in need, you know, and, you know, in general, when you look at the apartment, um, Remodel piece too. I mean, in practice, logistically, that makes sense, right? I mean, you buy a, a property that one would consider a slum. The landlord is a terrible landlord because he's a slum lord. Someone buys the property so that they can rehab it and provide cleaner, healthier, safer environments for a, a tenant, obviously, along with that goes increased rents. But um, it's a piece really that as we revitalize our city, that's something everyone would want, right? A a cleaner, healthier, safer environment. So, I mean, I see that in practice and I I can certainly see how that may impact tenants, certainly in a a group being terminated for the entire building. Now we've got the rental services commission, the registration for landlords in Portland. What's the city's purpose with this next step?
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, the rental services commission is actually kind of an interesting body. I was actually on the commission for a short period of time. Um, and then I ended up, you know, resigning mainly just because I felt like it was a big waste of time and actually it was really invented more for optical reasons, um, as opposed to really trying to get things done. The commission's larger than it really should be to make effective decisions. And what was most shocking is that the city pretty much already had an agenda. They already knew what they wanted to do. And they just had a timeline for rolling it out. And one of those things was a rental registration. Um, And the rental registration is something that they felt is necessary because they didn't have a good idea of how many properties were actually rentals. And they didn't really know how those rental tenancies were starting and stopping. And so their proposal was like, well, you know what, we're going to do is start tracking that. Um, You know, unfortunately, though, that is going to cost a lot of money. And so, right now in 2019, they are giving landlords the option um, to register on a schedule when they file their taxes. I believe it's Schedule R. I'll have to double check, but I'm pretty sure that's what it is. And uh, and then in 2020, they will have the distinct pleasure of registering and paying a fee—a fee that we actually don't know what that's going to be. And if it, it could be per unit, so you can imagine if you know you charge $100 um, per unit and you have an apartment building with you know 10 units that's going to be substantial cost that adds to the operating budget. Now, what if you have 100 units? So I mean, these nothing is free here. And it's not even really clear what the city is going to accomplish by tracking some of this information. And the most bizarre thing about it is that the city knows from the tax records what are occupied and non occupied properties. They already have a pretty good idea. And when it comes to multifamily, they definitely know where those are, they can count them. You know, they're the ones who are allowing those buildings to be built. So I'm not quite sure why the registration is necessary. Um, It really looks like it's a step towards more regulation. Um, But, you know, it's hard to say.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a really good point. Um, The resources sometimes that we as commoners here uh, in our communities use, such as tax (laughs) records, which are public, um, should be very apparent and easy to decipher from the city's perspective. Uh, I know a couple of years ago, it's, it's been about a year and a half, I had the title company pull up. Uh, all the single-family homes in Portland, there were 190,000 approximate single-family homes. About 43,000 of those were labeled as non-owner-occupied or with an, another address as a mailing address. And then the about 34,000 of the 43,000 were owned by Oregon residents, which is a really an interesting stat. Um, and I, I was a little bit surprised at that about 81% of the non-owner-occupied single-family homes in Portland are owned by Oregon residents, which kind of defeats that idea of these uh, evil California buyers moving up. So, you know, so you've got those two tiers and then you've got the screening um, restrictions coming here. I understand that we've got uh, another push here to modify the screening and how landlords are able to screen. What are those proposals and where do you see that impact in the market?
0: So the screening is a huge, huge concern. Um, It's quite the mess. Um, The city is kind of biting off more than they can chew. And I think they've started to figure that out somewhat quickly. But the problem is, is what they're proposing is pretty aggressive. Uh, Some of the things that they're looking at wanting to roll out is either limiting or creating offsetting factors um, for criminal background checks, meaning you know, someone has a criminal background, there are things that they would be able to do that really wouldn't be related to necessary rehabilitation, um, that would then um, force landlords to rent to them, or they're toying with the idea of, you know, eliminating that entirely. They're a little um, cautious about that, mainly just because of a lawsuit going on in Seattle, um, with the city regarding their ordinance on no criminal background checks. But you know that's one factor uh, the other issue though with that really comes down to them wanting to reduce the income requirements, so they are looking at capping income requirements for properties at two and a half times the rent so if the rent was a thousand dollars a month, household income could be capped at two point five times so twenty five hundred now the problem with that though is the city is literally trying to create what one might say subprime tenants now we dealt with this exact issue before the Great Recession, where they we had subprime mortgages. And essentially, you had people who are really not creditworthy, being given loans that they couldn't perform on. And they defaulted. And that caused a wave of foreclosures. The city is looking at taking that great idea and applying it to rental properties, you know, and that's going to create a lot of unintended consequences that that they're either aware of and don't care, um, or not aware of, uh, although I'm pretty sure they've been informed about this. But one of the big concerns is, you know, you place a tenant in a property with inadequate income, they miss rent payments, they get evicted, right? They get an eviction on their record. And in Oregon, you know, landlords don't have to rent to you for five years if you have an eviction on your record. And in some other states, if they see an eviction, or cities even for that matter, um, they won't rent you at all. So you're talking about creating a hardship for somebody who is already part of a class that is facing some challenges and you want to just rush them into housing. Um, but at what expense? You know, you're going to have property values potentially be impacted if you know you have higher default rates. Uh, essentially, you know, if you have multifamily people are looking at cash flow and pro formas. But just from the community single family side, you know, you're going to have neighborhoods with people that frankly are not maybe as safe as they are today, uh, if they waive the criminal backgrounds, and maybe not able to afford the property, really. So that, that's a pretty significant concern. Um, and, you know, one kind of thing that some people say is, well, okay, you know, you're going to lower the screening requirements, you're going to increase my risk, I as a landlord, I'm going to uh, increase the deposit, right? That's kind of the, the deposit and the screening criteria have a very, very symbiotic relationship, and they kind of balance each other out, well, the city as part of, you know, wanting to redraft some of these screening rules, is wanting to cap security deposits. So essentially, they're trying to, you know, pull the rug out from underneath you as a landlord and basically stop you from being able to screen your tenants, and then also, you know, offset your risk by asking for some collateral. Um, and ultimately, what this does is it harms everyone. It harms the owners of the building. It harms the. Uh, residents who are performing because it impacts their building and their direct community. You know, the only people that are really getting out ahead on this are the people that, um, you know, are essentially not contributing the most to the building and are also being put in a position that, frankly, isn't in their best interest. Um, And so, you know, those are some of the things that, that we're really seeing come down the pipeline. Now, you know, kind of this all relates together. One of the words, you know, that's been used frequently is the term, you know, affordability. Um, So one of the questions I had was, you know, how has the state attempted to solve this issue and what does affordability really mean?
1: Well, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because affordability, the definition and the perception are quite different. HUD's definition of affordability is any family who spends 30 percent or less of their income on housing needs. And You know, that is a little bit of a stretch because if you look at the way loans are set up, uh, you know, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac are looking at about 45 to 47 percent debt to income ratio uh, for the affordability piece for your for your loan. Um, And at the same time, you've got more than 12 million renters and homeowners that spend 50 percent or more of their income on housing. And that's not in Portland or Oregon. That's uh, according to HUD's numbers. And, you know, that's, that's a huge number of people that are spending 50% of their income. And so when you're looking at, you know, 12 million people that are not just uh, a little bit over uh, the affordability realm, but are nearly double the affordability piece uh, for the amount spent on housing, that's an incredible number. So, you know, there, there are a couple strategies that um, statewide uh, and other cities and, and states across the country as well, Um, a couple things that they've done. One is the introduction of inclusionary zoning. So the idea of inclusionary zoning essentially is to say all new construction, any uh, building, multifamily building that's 20 units or more has to have a certain portion of their units provided to the market as affordable housing, meaning they take a discount at um, a certain percentage of median family income. So uh, according to the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability, between February 1st, seventeen and February 1st, 2018, there were 12 privately financed projects included, uh, which included 565 market rate residential units and 89 affordable units. So that's those are the, the permits. So the number of permits that were pulled specifically. Now, there, there's a gentleman by the name of Tyler Bump. He's the senior economic planner for... Uh, Bureau of Planning and Sustainability, and he said that the the healthy rate to add the number of units is about 10,000 units. There were 19,000 units in the pipeline to be completed. Only 5,000 of those units have received building permits, which leaves a a pretty significant shortage if we need 10,000 of them to kind of keep with the flow of supply that's needed here. Now, of the uh, 89 affordable units that were produced out of the 565, uh, 69 of those were at 80% median family income. So that means whatever the median family income, you have to provide as a landlord a rent that is 80% of that, uh, the median rent. And then uh, about 20 of those units were at 60%. So that's a variable based on the number of units in each uh, division. Now, uh, there were a couple... Um, options out of inclusionary zoning. And one was you could opt in, which is interesting. If you didn't have a building that required, say it was 19 units, that builder could still turn around and opt into that program so that they're providing to the community. And they're certainly welcome to do that. Um, so there were two projects who voluntarily voluntarily opted in. And there were also three who bought out of the program. So there are a couple ways to buy out. You essentially pay a fee. Uh, some people would see see that as a tax to um, unload that on the front end especially essentially pay the fee up front so that later on their project or um, um, their apartment building may either cash flow better or be worth more at a higher cap later on when they go to sell um, and then the other way to do it is to offset some of that by having an entire complex that is available at full uh, rental rate and then, take a portion of those uh, low income pieces and uh, plug those units into another project so you can separate them on two separate properties.
0: Yeah. So uh, just a couple questions about that. I mean, one, you know, it sounds like IZ was designed to create more affordable units. Um, you know, has that been the case? I mean, is it, is it a successful change to policy or are we seeing it be not effective? I mean, what, what is your kind of take on that?
1: Well, in general, I'll tell you there was a deadline, and uh, in 2017, when this went into effect, the prior to the deadline, they had 17,000 permits uh, that were pulled so that people could beat the deadline. The developers could beat the deadline and, and get under the uh, under the radar. Um, and they only have 5,000 of those that were actually completed on the on the permitting process. So that tells me that they're either holding off to see what the market's going to do, or um you know it was so important to them to make the projects cash flow that they had to make sure that they permitted those ahead of time and that some of those are, are most likely not going to be coming to fruition which I think minimizes the supply which obviously has the opposite effect and my take on it so far and uh, according to the reports that are, are being put out by the by the bureau you know it really is a project where they're looking at alternate solutions because they're not bringing on as many projects as they anticipated and that is really coupled with and ex, uh, exacerbated by the fact that the cost of construction has gone up about 24% in the last two and a half years. That's a sub- Jeez, substantial wow. amount of increase in the cost of construction. Add to that your reduced amount of income coming from that project, and some of those projects are not penciling. So like we talked about before, you know, this is a business strategy, and if the numbers don't work, it doesn't make sense to really, to really build those units. Yeah.
0: Well, I mean, it sounds like IZ has actually had a cooling effect on development. So I guess we'll see what comes down the pipeline, but it doesn't sound like it's maybe producing what, what it was supposed to.
1: Well, it, it definitely had uh, developers and contractors hitting the pause button. So we see a lot of people who submitted the initial paperwork, and they're kind of spilling that out and looking at what the supply is, what the demand is, because currently uh, there are quite a few units, brand new units that are doing lease-ups, and they're offering two-, three-, six-month Um, bonuses for folks that are signing a one-year lease agreement to fill those buildings. So once those are full, I think you'll see a little bit more of a stabilization. But still, people are buying assets and building assets on the basis and the premise that that will, number one, cash flow so that you can pay your income taxes and pay your property taxes and pay your expenses and pay your management and pay to upkeep the building. And when that stops making sense, I mean, it really creates creates a, a bottleneck for you.
0: So um, I guess the other question I have, too, is, you know, say I'm a builder and I wanted to put in some affordable units or maybe I'm being mandated to do it. Um, How long is my commitment to keeping those units affordable? Do you know?
1: Yeah. Well, under the inclusionary zoning, it will carry on with the project in perpetuity. I mean, that project specifically is going to have those affordable units forever. And so you're going to have to maintain unless they had some type of relief. Let's say we got into a bad economy with high uh, vacancy rates or something like that, which I don't really see that happening. I mean, I think in general, those would be the last units to be uh, given a retrieve, a reprieve. But those projects really have um they have to sell the property with inclusionary zoning and those uh affordable units built Mm -hmm. into the projections
0: yeah that makes sense um yeah i just was wondering if maybe there's a cap i think i've heard that maybe there is but i wasn't super familiar with that well it's interesting it's good to know
1: Yeah. Well, you know, tell me a little bit, uh, how, how did these changes really compare to other major metros on the West coast? I know that you and I have both done some traveling up, up and down the West coast. I'm from California originally. Um, but we've seen, (laughs) we've seen some of these play out and we've seen other examples of this, right? I mean, we've seen, uh, some other restrictions in Seattle and in, uh, San Francisco and Los Angeles. Tell us a little bit about how we compare with some of these rules and regs and some of the things coming down the pike.
0: Yeah, I mean, housing is at the forefront of a lot of different um, municipalities and states, uh, primarily just because again, you know, the West Coast is, you know, had a lot of appreciation, both in rents and in values, which, you know, is needed just because everyone got hit so hard in the recession. So, um, you know, for some people, it's been a great thing to see the property values come back, it's pulled houses up from being underwater. But, you know, it's also again, created a lot of demand for rentals because you have people moving from other parts of the country to really enjoy the different things that happen on the West Coast. So you've seen you know, cities like Seattle uh, roll out relocation, um, although they were a little bit more thoughtful about their ordinance and made sure that it was means tested. Um, I think Tacoma, Washington did something similar, but they're actually in a situation where the city pays a portion of the relocation. Um, you know, Seattle tried to implement some policies on First come, first serve, uh, which has always been a best practice, essentially, you know, in in housing. If you're renting to people, is is first come, first serve. But it's never been required. You know, HUD's never required it. And so the city of Seattle tried to implement that. They got sued and um, they lost. And so they had to reverse that. But then they have also implemented, um, you know, no more criminal background checks for people in Seattle. I mean, that's just absurd. Um, And they're being sued for that too. So we'll see how that kind of goes. And that also plays into, you know, how the city of Portland is planning on reacting. And then, you know, you have all the stuff that's been happening in Oregon, which is, you know, we've extended notice periods. uh, We've had relocation come about. um, You know, you've basically reduced what fees can be charged. Uh, And then in California, you know, there's a variety of things there. The biggest one um, recently in 2018 um, was an effort to have statewide uh, rent control. Um, And that was a very, very uh, interesting Fight to watch. Um, surprisingly, it was overwhelmingly voted down. It was a it was a ballot measure, and they were unsuccessful in getting rent control. Um, which from for California to turn something down like that that's that's pretty surprising. But um, you know, Oregon, we uh, well not necessarily we as Oregonians, but the people in charge, the legislature and uh, the city councils, you know, they get jealous if they're outshined by these other cities and states, and they want to show that they can be progressive, they want to show that they can, you know, advocate for the common person from their perception, um, and take on the landlords. And so they are looking to, you know, roll out more and more regulations. Uh, that would be what they deem, again, you know, renter protections. And, um, you know, it's a little bit bizarre, just because of the fact that, you know, there are a lot of rules already on the books, uh, If they just enforced those that would probably be a step in the right direction. And, you you know, education is a big driver. And then also supply, supply is going to solve the problem. And that's something where we've seen a lot of um, kind of contradictory behavior from the city of Portland. Now, you know, another major thing that we've kind of seen, um, I think is important to mention, because there's really something that has empowered states, cities to be a lot more bold with some of their initiatives, is the disparate impact, uh, essentially ruling by the Supreme Court. So essentially, Disparate impact is something where even though you may not intend to be discriminatory, if your policy has a discriminatory effect on a protected class, um, then you could be found liable of discrimination. Now, this has always been something that had never really made its way out of state courts, and it eventually, in the summer of 2015... Uh, there was a ruling, actually, there was a case, it was Texas Housing Department versus Inclusive Communities, which was an institution in Texas, they got into uh, debate here about over the, uh, if disparate impact was permissible under the Fair Housing Act. And in a five to four ruling, uh, the justices upheld that disparate impact could be allowed and was permissible under uh, the Fair Housing Act. And so that changed a lot of people's attitudes. Now, they did offer a lot of advice along with that ruling to kind of narrow the use to prevent abuse, because that was certainly something they were worried about. But it's given the green light to a lot of nonprofits and tenant attorneys to basically say like, you know what, I can make a disparate impact claim. And it's going to cost you a lot of money and time. And, you know, we may or may not win, but it's a whole new tool in their belt. And for people who are operating rental properties, I mean, especially if you're a mom and pop, that's one, extremely intimidating. And if you're a management company or a large owner, I mean, just litigation expensive, right? Nobody wants to be the test case. And so, um, you know, that's really one of the, the big changes that's really emboldened, um, I would say, that just municipalities around the country, but especially over here in the western region of the United States. So um, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the things that are happening in Oregon. Um, specifically this new bill that's coming out. But before we get started on that, I think we need to go
1: to a quick break. Every real estate transaction is an investment. Whether you're buying your first home, selling your current home, or looking for an investment property, you're spending hard-earned money and building wealth. Matt Williams and his team have the tools to make every real estate experience a great one. Unlike other realtors, Matt and his team have industry expertise and resources that save you money and simplify the process. If you're thinking of buying or selling a home or want to work with a true professional to invest in real estate, go to bisonproperties.com to learn more about Matt Williams and his team. That's B-I-S-O-N properties.com. Hello and welcome back to Invest in the West. Nick, we're operating in a whole new world here with Senate Bill 608 now that that's passed statewide. What exactly did this bill change and why should investors be paying close attention to the new laws?
0: Matt, that's a great question. Um, SB 608 is one of the most, um, I guess you'd say draconian bills we've seen in a long time come out of the Oregon legislature. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, they made changes to three major segments of landlord-tenant law. Now, the one that's getting all the attention in the press and has made national news has to do with the first ever statewide regulations on rent control. So while rent control has been in existence in other cities, New York, San Francisco, and so forth, there has never been a statewide measure that addressed this. So Oregon is really a pioneer in this way. Um, Some might argue not in a good way, but there are some pros and cons to this, which we'll get into. But really what they did is they addressed three major things. Uh, The first one we talked about was rent control, Um, So essentially, what they've put into place is a cap at 7% plus CPI. And the CPI index that they're using has to do on the the Western United States, they're going to be reviewing it every fall. Currently, that puts us at a total rent cap statewide of about 10.3. So you have, you know, essentially the 7% plus CPI 3.3%. So if you're in Oregon, you are forbidden from increasing the rent more than 10.3%. Now, a lot of people may say, well, I'm not doing that anyways, which is which is true. Most landlords are not doing that. Despite stories of price gouging, that's not something that's really prevalent. Where people are getting caught and stuck are people that have been under-renting their properties to be good landlords, to be friendly, to help out the community, to help out their residents for extended periods of time. Now, that may not be the best business decision, but these are the people that are really getting caught in the crossfire because if you're several hundred dollars below rent, market rents, you now have... A problem. You're not going to be able to catch up within any reasonable amount of time, um, which, if you need to sell, is going to have a major negative impact on the value of your property. So that's that's one of the major concerns. Um, The other area that they address has to do with how you terminate tenancies. So this is a property right that they've been going after for some time, and they finally really whittled it away. Basically, if you know you have a resident that's lived in the property for more than one year you are now very, very limited on how you're able to get that property back, whether you wanna move into it, whether you wanna sell it, whatever it happens to be. Now you have to meet a qualifying reason or have a certain exemption, which, are very narrow, which is a very narrow list. Um, and then if you're in Portland, um, it's even more difficult to navigate because now you're navigating both state and city rules. Um, and then basically the third one is a statewide relocation. So relocation was something that started in Portland And the way Portland goes, oftentimes the way the state goes, just because Portland controls a lot of the legislative seats. And uh, we have our first statewide relocation measure as well. So as a landlord, you've been put in a position where now you have um, a cap on your income or revenue generation, but no cap on your expenses. Um, You have less freedom with how you are using the property in terms of if you want to sell, liquidate, move in, etc. And then also now you're being um, subjected to some additional costs um, when you do have a vacancy, should you ask a resident to vacate under one of those exemptions now there's a lot of nuance to all of these rules so I'm not going to get into you know splitting hairs and all the details here, but that's a really high level view of essentially what's happened uh, here in Oregon under SB 608 and um, you know I'd love to say that this is kind of the end of regulation here and that they're they're satisfied with these changes but it's probably you know, you know, an ongoing battle that we're going to continue to see just because this is a major topic in Oregon currently. With that in mind, I, I think, you know, Matt, you do a lot of brokerage, right? That That's a huge area of focus for you. Yeah. Um, you know, you're working with clients that are not only within Oregon, but also outside of Oregon. Um, you know, people like Oregon. It's a, it's a great state for a lot of reasons. Um, how do you think these regulations are impacting the current and future investors? I mean, what are you seeing out there?
1: Well, Nick, I mean, one of the things that every investor considers is what's the cost, right? And cost can come in several different ways. I mean, um, obviously, you're looking at the taxes and insurance and maintenance and vacancy and turnover expenses. Uh, At the same time, you're also considering how you're going to try to exit that property and exiting that property sometimes can be a real challenge. And, you know, to your point with uh, limiting your ability to terminate the tenant and get the tenant out, you know, we're seeing a lot of that restriction being something that an incoming investor is going to need to budget for. You know, if if you're an incoming investor, um, you really need to consider if I want to liquidate the asset how liquid is it, right? And that's been one of the great vehicles on the single family side for someone who wants to liquidate an asset because you're really selling to two separate markets. One is the emotional investor who wants to buy and live there. The other market is someone who is another investor and would want to rent it out. And it cha- that really creates a challenge with SB608 because it puts the buyer in a scenario where if they want to terminate that tenant, they're not going to be able to do that until they've sold the property.
0: Wow, that so that that's... That could be a pretty big barrier. and I'm going to want to ask you a little bit about that a little bit later here, because um, that just I mean I read that line item in, in the bill and was just surprised, blown away, and thought that that was one of the most underdeveloped aspects of that bill. So I do want to I
1: want to get into that. Yeah, 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 I don't think it's something that the legislators really thought through. Um, And I think it creates a hardship for both sides. So we'll get into that a bit. But from just an investment perspective, if I own a property, a single family home in uh, the state, I'm really going to be looking at, okay, how do I minimize my exposure to this liability? So there are a couple ways to do it. Primarily, the the primary way is if I still want to invest in Oregon and I believe in Oregon, I'm going to upgrade my property from a single family to a multifamily. Because under that scenario, I don't need to terminate a tenant to... Liquidate the asset. And to be honest, there's better cash flow. So, why wouldn't I do that? So, that shrinks the supply of single family homes for renters because they're selling those homes off to people who may want to occupy them. And then they're rolling that money into something that's multifamily. So, that's uh, what the current investor, I think, is doing. The future investor, when they're looking at single family, Really, the challenge is that that raises the barrier of entry, which creates a, a problem if you're an investor because a majority of first-time investors in real estate buy a single-family home because it's something they know. Their, their knowledge base and expertise or experience in you know completing repairs um, is obviously there. The other thing is they can afford it. And really, this puts us in a scenario where if you're budgeting for rental caps, you're, you're budgeting for um, the exit and when, when you need to terminate a tenant, That just increases the expenses. Yeah. One other thing I I think that isn't considered um, oftentimes is we're dealing right now in a great market. So what happens if you buy in a low market and you can't demand high rents, right? So if we go into a recession and rents are down by 30% because- you had vacancy at 30%, you had to reduce the rents. Once you place that tenant, you're not going to be able to increase that rent as fast as the market will allow you. So you might be stuck with a long term asset for a long time at low rents.
0: Yeah, yeah. Those are great points, Matt. And you know, one of the things that you know investors are always looking for is value, right? So we want to know kind of where the silver lining is in this situation. Obviously, there's a lot of uh, downsides and concerns for a lot of people. But you know, it's not all bad news, and a lot of people, you know especially where they're investing today in Portland uh, predominantly, you know if you're in it for the long term, this actually could work out really well for you. But I just wanted to know, you know, in general, are you optimistic about portland and in, in terms of the real estate market and this being a place to invest?
1: Yeah, you know that's a really good question. A lot of uh, my clients come to me and say, you know should I be investing in in portland and depending on their portfolio and kind of where they want to go. um, I say, I say yes. I mean, Portland still is a great city. It's a good place to live from a, um, an amenities standpoint because people want to live where they love. Right. And we're close to the beach. We're close to the mountain. It's got a good, uh, you know, food industry. It's got a, a great community feel. And um, I think if you already own in Portland, you're going to by far, Make it up in an appreciation and opportunity moving forward. We're still one of the cheapest, if not the cheapest, major metropolitan on the west coast. Uh, obviously, there are other cities to that you can move to for less, but the amenities here is what people pay for,
0: sure, yeah, well, I know for us, what we're telling our clients is it really depends on what your goals are because you know one of the things that regulation inevitably is going to bring and already has started to bring is creating barriers of entry and causing people who are not comfortable with the new rules to exit the market. So you're getting a consolidation of ownership, you're getting a loss of supply. And what that means is if you're in the business for the long term, you know, you're actually going to have probably a golden goose here where you're probably not going to experience much vacancy, you're not going to have long periods of turnover when that happens. Um, I said long periods of vacancy and not much turnover is what I should have said. But uh, and then also you'll be positioned to You know, earn rent increases. And now, now you have a state sanctioned reason to say, you know what, resident, I would love to not increase the rent. However, I cannot afford to take the risk of my expenses outpacing the income for the property. So while in the past I may have gone years without increasing the rent, every single year I'm going to be increasing it. Now, whether you go to the max really depends on where you are in the market and what it's going to bear. But, you know, basically, every landlord is going to be increasing rent every year now, they just can't afford not to. Um, But you know, we I I want to get into that a little bit more. um, Because we were touching on some of those barriers for selling the property, which, you know, that's going to slow down the velocity and increase time on market and a lot of other stuff. So You know, from your perspective, because I know a lot of the investors are looking at SFR properties, single family homes, um, essentially, how does this affect the overall single family home market on housing prices? And what other factors are involved? I mean, one of the biggest things that I would want to know really is, am I picking the right agent to navigate this new landscape? So what what are your thoughts on that?
1: You know, I really think that this is one of the most overlooked areas in this entire bill. Because if I'm an investor and I've got a tenant in place and I want to sell that property, I don't think that anyone would argue that a tenant does not treat the property the same way an owner would. It's not nearly as easy to show a property with a tenant in place as it is with an owner who's motivated to sell the property. And this bill requires that you sell the property with a tenant in place as opposed to giving a termination. So what that means is a majority of the time when I counsel a client on a vacant property, I'll explain to them, you know, you need to paint this wall or do a full repaint. You should refinish the floors. You should stage the property. You should brighten this room up. You should um, improve it, improve the property. And you do a lot of cosmetic things that give the emotional feel when people walk into a home. But you can't do that when you have a tenant in place or you could, but it would be damaged and it would be all for naught. The other challenge that you have there, just from a logistical perspective, is that this bill requires a 90-day notice to the tenant. Now, if you give a 90-day notice to a tenant, the existing landlord or the owner of the property would be required to give that notice once you have acceptance, but wait 90 days. So typical closings are 45 days long, 30 to 45 days. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that means that within the real estate transaction, the landlord has to give notice to the tenant so that the buyer can then occupy the property. And oftentimes, a majority of the time, the underwriter for the loan requires that they occupy the property within 60 days. So there's some federal regulations specific to them needing to occupy the property within a specific period of time.
0: That's pretty crazy. I mean, this brings up all kinds of questions. I mean, aside from, you know, sitting on the market potentially longer because you can't get showings, not being able to unlock the value you want in that asset. Um, I mean, but what if you get into a situation where, say, you know, I just get lucky, I have somebody who wants to buy the property, they write an offer, we accept it, we give the tenant notice, and then all of a sudden we're going through the inspection period and the buyers back out. Like, what happens to that notice? Now I got a tenant who's on their way out and... I mean, do I rescind it? But I'm still, I want to, maybe I want to go back to the market still. I I want, my goal is to sell the, I mean, what do you do in these scenarios?
1: You know, that is yet to be determined. I mean, that's going to end up in a lawsuit because it's not really clearly defined in the bill. I mean, one of the challenges you have there is you've already given the funds to the tenant and terminated the tenant based on the bona fide purchasers right to occupy the property. Now, once the ball starts rolling, you're in a time frame where the tenant thinks they're moving, the buyer thinks they're moving, the seller thinks they've sold a home, the money has already been spent on the relocation, and then the financing falls through. It doesn't happen all the time, but it happens, and there's no real clear path for that, because to unwind that is really a challenge. The tenant feels a little cheated, the seller feels a little cheated, and the buyer didn't get the house, so no one's really happy in that situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, because there's a lot of uh, penalties for not complying with the statute. So I wonder how where those are going to land if you get into a situation like that. I mean, the other thing too, though, is, you know, we all know when somebody moves out of a property, in particular a rental, uh, oftentimes you there's stuff that needs to be done. It needs to be cleaned. I mean, deep cleaned. Um, there's, you know, things that just need to be addressed and looked at. Walls have wear. I mean, there's just normal wear and tear, and then there's also going to be damage. I mean, even good residents, you know, they're, you know cause damage to the properties. And so, you know how how does that window work? I mean, you say you say you do give the notice, tenant moves out, the buyer comes in to buy it. You know, it's not really common to just turn around and deliver an empty house that's got you know another couple grand of work that needs to be done to it. You know, and how do you guarantee the condition of that when 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 the tenant moves out? I mean, that's another concern. So what are, what are, are you advising people?
1: Well, that's that's a real challenge, and it comes down to to negotiation. I think that we're probably going to see more escrow holdbacks where the um, seller has to leave a little bit of money behind to guarantee the condition. I think that we're going to see longer closings. So if a buyer wants to purchase a property, it might take 120 days and you have to push closing out. Um, You're also going to run into a a situation where a home buyer, a first time home buyer may be a landlord for a couple months so that uh, they can obtain the property that they want. I mean, the challenge really is you have three offers on the line. One of those is an owner occupant. They want the seller to give notice to the tenant, and in order to get the property, the buyer has to say, you know what, I'll waive that, I'll give notice to the tenant, and I'll take the risk with my, with my lender. I'm certainly not advising that, but that's a situation to win the deal that many buyers may be willing to take. You know, uh, that's a a risk that they may be willing to take. Uh, The further step there is that now they become a landlord. Yeah. And if they haven't collected the proper data, if they don't have the lease agreements, if they don't know that the termination was served properly, if they don't know what the condition of the property was when the tenant moved in, if they don't have move in inspections and if they don't understand how to give a final accounting, there's a lot of liability associated with that. And I'll be honest, there aren't a lot of real estate agents that comprehend that process, as well as a professional property management company, or as they really should from a landlord perspective. So, you have to be really, really careful in selecting your real estate agent when you're trying to find a property and maybe locating one with a tenant in place.
0: Yeah, well, that's a great point. And we've changed our policy on what we're allowing owners to do. And if we're going to be managing a property, if it's under, uh, if it's up for sale, just because. There, I mean, it used to be complicated as it was, and now there's this whole new layer of liability, and especially if we're actively managing the property, we we want to represent them on the brokerage side because we know how to navigate it. Otherwise, we might need to step out of the picture. So I imagine, um, you know, it's it's concerning how many brokers probably don't know what these details are. I mean, I, I just know from being in the business a long time, many brokers don't know that you even need to give 24 hours notice and what the penalties are. So this is obviously a lot more complex So, you know, you mentioned you have to give a minimum timeline of how much um, notice they need to get. Right. But what if, you know, you're buying from out of state and you're going to want to retire into the property? I mean, we've seen a lot of people come from other cities, say Portland's where I want to live in retirement. I'm buying this, but I'm not going to maybe retire for another year or something like that. I'm just setting up all my pieces of the puzzle here. Is there a maximum amount of time? Like how long do they maintain that right to be able to terminate the tenancy?
1: You know, that's a good question, too. Uh, there's actually a a little bit of a, of a discrepancy with the exceptions, okay. because for you to occupy the property directly, you uh, can give notice uh, per state rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. That's one of the exemptions. Yeah. However, there's also a phrase uh, within the bill that says that you have 120 days from acceptance of the offer to give notice that the bona fide purchaser wants to occupy the property. So it Those two things conflict a bit because, technically speaking, once I'm the owner, I fit under one exemption, and then the other one has uh, the other exemption has a requirement for 120 days from the time that you uh, have mutual acceptance on the property. So I'm I'm a little bit uh, concerned that that's going to lead to litigation at some point.
0: Yeah, uh, you know, I wonder if that's going to is kind of outside of the immediate realm, but I wonder if that's going to really push up. EONO insurance in Oregon, just because now agents are taking on this extra liability. They're, I mean, just you have to think about the amount of claims that are going to be occurring over the next couple of years. So that's going to be an interesting potential side effect to see.
1: Well, I mean, what it's going to come down to as well, the, they're certainly going to be modifying uh, the agreements. Uh, OREF, I'm, I'm sure, is going to be modifying those. There's going to be a lot more lawsuits because people aren't going to be happy when a buyer takes possession of a property that they thought was one way. And then when they move in, the tenant had damaged it or they th- they thought the carpet was gray. They found out it was white, but <laughs> you couldn't see the white because it was covered up by the couch. Yeah. I mean, when a tenant moves out, the condition of the property is not going to be what the, what the listing agreement says. And, you know, the purchase and sale agreement clearly says that the condition of the property has to be of like kind. Mm-hmm. So if the tenant damages the property on the way out, is the seller... Still responsible since they surrendered the property when the tenant was still in place?
0: Yeah. I mean, say they're moving their bed from upstairs and somebody trips and puts a elbow through the wall or a piece of furniture dent. I mean, like, I mean, obviously that's what the security deposit's for, but you get more complicated when it's like, well, who's doing the final accounting and all that stuff? Well, I mean, we could go on and on, obviously, about this. There's uh, a lot that is yet to be seen. Um, SB 608, without a doubt, has had a major impact. And unfortunately, it looks like. Uh, Other states have kind of stood up and um, taken notice of that. And some are even trying to follow suit. There's a bit of a competition on the West Coast between Oregon, Washington, and California on um, who can be the most restrictive. And so, you know, they're starting to roll out their own proposals that may very well pass. But we're talking about Oregon today. So that's what we have going on. Uh, Matt, you know, I appreciate all of your insight here. I'm sure all the other listeners of Invest in the West do as well. Uh, So I think that's what we're covering today, and I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in.
1: It'll be a great next episode. Stay tuned. Talk to you soon.